bow your heads. Once again, let me in prayer. Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would stir our hearts with greater love and affection for you. That the love that you have loved us with would be with would, would be in us, would shape us. As we love the Father as you have loved the Father, and as we love each other as you have loved us. Just ask that you would do a work in our midst, even today, as we lift your word. And I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our journey in 1st Corinthians, 1st Corinthians chapter 13. So you could turn there if you've got a Bible with you, 1st Corinthians chapter 13. I want to start though our time by asking you a question. Um, have you ever worked a job before where you felt like what you did wasn't very significant or important? You felt like you were expendable compared to the people on the job who really matter. Maybe you felt like you were just doing mindless little tasks behind the scenes that anybody could do, just pulling levers and switches, compared to the people that were doing much more significant work. I felt like that at times. Here's an example. Uh, I was a janitor. Um, at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis for five years. So I spent countless hours vacuuming dirt, scooping up trash, scrubbing toilets. Anyone really could have done my job. Um, and yet that was my role at the church where I was a member. And God helped me to see it as more than just a job. Even though I did get paid for it, it was my ministry to the church. And so the way I started to view it was that the members of the church, they shared their money with me, and I shared my time and my strength with them to care for that aspect of our weekly life together. It was a way that I could love my church family and meet their needs practically, while also having my own needs met to feed my family. Uh, it would have, it could have been tempting, and it was at times, to view uh, those who are ministering in the church as maybe like uh, some of my fellow classmates who are pastors' assistants or teaching all these classes on behalf of professors. Um, as those roles are more significant. More upfront, more important than scrubbing pee off a urinal where someone missed. Right? Like, oh Lord, help me. Help me have grace here. Or um, cleaning up mid service throw up on the front row where a kid just totally lost it in front of 700 people. <laughs> right? Like, I guess that was that wasn't behind the scenes. That was pretty front front scene. I think everybody was feeling sorry for me there, and I was grateful that I could not smell. I could tell janitor stories for days, but most of the work 
was done behind the scenes. Um, and sometimes it felt pretty monotonous and insignificant compared to the more upfront leadership roles. However, from our time in Corinthians together, especially chapter 12, I don't think that the Apostle Paul would have wanted me, Janitor Joel, to view my ministry as a janitor as any less significant or important than the pastors of the church preaching that week. And yet the Corinthian church, boy, they seemed to be really challenged with what they saw as significant compared to how God viewed what was significant and important. They were viewing some of the ministries in the church as far more important than other ministries. And the ministries that the Corinthians were really holding up as, boy, you really want this role. You want this slot. Those were the upfront ministries in the church of prophecy, of tongues, and of knowledge. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, this whole section, what Paul is doing, he's working to try to correct this faulty thinking. In chapter 12, which we've already covered as a church, and I'm assuming most of the Beckler clan, you haven't been with us, but you've read chapter 12 before, Paul spends a whole time trying to communicate to the church that the different ministries in the body are filled by different members who serve in important ways. And even the, the most seemingly insignificant roles are to be treated as more honorable and worthy of honor. In chapter 14, skipping ahead, Paul's going to call out the Corinthians for the unloving and unhelpful ways that they're abusing the gifts of the Spirit that they really value. Those upfront gifts, they're abusing them and using them in unloving ways. So chapter 12, he's saying, all the ministries are important, guys. And in chapter 14, he's like, the ones that you think are really important, you're not using them in loving ways. You're using them in ways that are hurting the body. And in the middle, in between, in chapter 13... Paul says, in all the ministries, love must govern what you do. Not just love, but faith and hope. Because all three of these, faith, trust in God, hope in God, and love for God and for God's people, will endure into eternity. Long after all these various upfront type of gifts are not needed anymore. Preachers won't have a job in the new creation. All right, so we'll, we're going to be looking at that together. So let's read the last half of chapter 13, verses 8 to 13. Paul writes, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection 
as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. One of my favorite theologians, a guy named N.T. Wright, he summarizes the main point of these verses like this. And I'll just start with a quote from him. He says, The church must be working in the present on the things that will last into God's future. Faith, hope, and love will do this. They're going to last into the future. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, so highly prized in Corinth, will not. They're merely signposts pointing to the future. When you arrive, you no longer need signposts. Love, however, is not just a signpost. It's a foretaste of the ultimate reality. Love is not merely a Christian duty, something we do on the way towards heaven. It's the Christian destiny, he says. So faith, hope, and love are going to remain into the ages. Prophecy, words from God, miraculous gifts, those are all pointing towards, summoning God's people towards loving each other like God has loved us. So, this morning, we're going to see four things in these verses. First, we're going to see a complete new creation is coming. Second, when that comes, the partial gifts, the things we know in part, partialness, will pass away. Third, we're going to see faith, hope, and love remain forever. And fourth, we're going to see love is the greatest. Here's the main idea if you put that all together. Because the fullness of new creation is coming, this face-to-face -face experience with Jesus, all the gifts of the Spirit that point to the new creation's arrival, like preaching, like knowledge, tongues, will pass away, leaving only faith, hope, and love forever. So first, let's look at the full, complete new creation is coming. This hope of a future new creation is what we named our church after, or the assembly of God's new creation on earth, even as we wait for the fullness of the new creation to arrive. And this future filled with love and only love is the hope that drives Paul to write everything he does here in these verses and in this whole section of Corinthians, really. Paul is exhorting these Christians in Corinth, guys, I want you to live right now like you hope to live for all eternity. So the love that you hope to enjoy, the type of life you hope to enjoy for eternity in the new creation, live like that right now. So in verse 8, Paul starts off this little section here by saying, love never fails. And or falls. The idea is love, love never falls. It never gives up. It never fails. And then chapter 13, or verse 13, look at how it ends. The greatest of these is love, and it remains into eternity. So this section that we're in begins with love is steadfast, and it ends with love remains forever. The eternal reality of love that 
doesn't fail. That's what pulls these verses together that we're looking at. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't use the word new creation in these verses. That's a word that I'm using to summarize what I think he's getting at. He uses a different word here for the day that's coming when faith and hope and especially love remain forever while everything else fades away. This word that he uses is found in verse 10. Okay, so if you look at verse 10, Paul says, When completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So this word for completeness, it basically, it's a word that means perfection or maturity. Sometimes it simply refers to believers in Jesus who have a mature, complete understanding of God's will right now, in the present. For example, back at the beginning of this letter, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Paul says his message of wisdom that he's sharing with the Corinthians, it's only going to sound wise to those who are spiritually mature. Same word that he uses here. But this word, maturity or perfection, it can also refer to the ultimate state of perfection and maturity that humans will experience when the fullness of all that God has called for us to be is finally realized in reality. When the new creation comes in its fullness or completeness, that's another way that this word can be used. For example, in Colossians 1, verse 28, Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the one that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature, complete in Christ. When would Paul present the church to Christ? Ultimately, throughout all his letters, that great day of presenting the, the pure and spotless bride to Jesus is the day when Christ appears. Holy and blameless, standing before him, the church will stand complete and mature, finally, with our sins washed away. Now, over the years, there have been, especially the last hundred years, there's been some hot debates about what this completeness that Paul talks about refers to. Not everyone agrees. Most do, but not everyone agrees that it's the new creation, the fullness of our, our Christian maturity in, in heaven. A few biblical interpreters have wanted to use this passage to prove that speaking in tongues and prophecy, and even the gift of knowledge that Paul references, were supposed to stop before Jesus returned. And so anybody that you know that speaks in tongues or claims to prophesy, maybe they're under the influence of demons or they're significantly confused or misled. This position is called cessationism, meaning that these sign gifts have ceased. Some cessationists, though not all, thankfully, have, have tried to make the case that the phrase, when completeness comes, in verse 10, refers to the day when the New Testament stopped being written. They think that when the Bible was finished being written, gifts like prophecy and knowledge and tongues were no longer needed because people had the Bible to tell them God's will and God's word. I really don't think that that's what this word maturity or completeness means here. The word maturity or completeness that Paul uses in this verse, it never refers to the completed Bible. 
in Paul's writings. And while Paul knew in Corinth that he was writing authoritative words on behalf of Jesus, the idea that Paul or the Corinthians would know that this personal letter to them was part of what we now call the Bible that wasn't quite complete yet, but one day would be finalized and formalized as the New Testament in the 300s, right? That idea is really quite a stretch. When completion comes, it means the Bible's finished. That, it, it doesn't seem to be the way Paul uses the word maturity, and it doesn't seem to be something that the Corinthians would have understood, or even Paul. But even more important than that is the fact that the verses that follow, in the verses that follow, Paul is going to give two illustrations that work together to help us understand what completeness means. Look at the first illustration in verse 11. Paul writes this, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I fought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So Paul is saying that he grew up in his thinking over the course of his life, and he doesn't think like a kid anymore. He's a mature man. If Paul were talking about the completed Bible coming to fruition here, he, in my opinion, he chooses a bit of a weird illustration. Why would he choose an illustration of human maturity to talk about the finalizing of a book called the New Testament that nobody even knows about yet in a formal way. They just know about the letters that they've had. But there's more. Paul's second illustration is found in verse 12. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. The word for that starts that verse, it's an explaining word. Paul's explaining further his previous illustration. And he's explaining his illustration about children growing up with another illustration. So he's just piling illustrations up. He's childish ways and reasoning and thinking, being childish, being like a kid, which isn't wrong. It's just childish, simple. It's, it's compared to looking at a dim reflection in a mirror. Back then, Mirrors were not like the mirrors that we have nowadays. Some of you may have heard this. They're, they were like polished bronze or tin or silver if you were rich. And the reflection in them was, was dim. Thus, so Paul's illustration, it really only makes sense if you realize that like, mirrors were a little bit fuzzy. You see things dimly, like a kid, childish. You know, you, you, you grasp something, but you don't. You can spurt facts off about something, but you don't know it super well. You memorize a definition, but do you really know how gravity works? <laughs> um, you grow into that knowledge. And now here's where things start to get really clear, in my opinion, about what Paul is referring to. Paul says, now we see but a poor, dim reflection, a childish understanding. But then, when we grow up, when we mature, then... The word then is, is a word that means at that time, then, at that time, it's a future-pointing word. Then, at that time, we shall see face to face. When is the face-to-face -face day? It's the day of maturity, the day of perfection, of completion. And this is clearly the day that we see Jesus 
face to face. Paul's last sentence solidifies all of this for us. He writes, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Full knowledge, face-to-face -face knowledge, perfect maturity. This is coming on the day that Jesus appears again, where we will one day be like him perfectly, as John says, for we shall see him as he is. Any knowledge of God we have now is only partial. Then we shall know him fully, even as we are known by him. And in that day of full and mature knowledge of God, face to face with him, and his presence forever, the second point, the main point that I want to highlight this morning is that the partial gifts of the Spirit will pass away. Paul highlights three here. The three favorite ones that the Corinthians we're all excited about prophecy, knowledge, and speaking in tongues. These three gifts were all very upfront, out there gifts. People with these gifts were put on pedestals as the mature ones in the Christian life. Look at them up there bestowing great wisdom on us and making great pronouncements about truth and falsehood and right and wrong. Look at them speaking languages they never learned that other people can interpret and understand. Look at God doing that in their midst. They're so, that's so amazing. Or look at them. They're so godly. With all their vast knowledge of the Old Testament and of the words about the Messiah, the mystery that's now revealed through Christ. Yet Paul says none of these gifts of the Spirit, these ministries, will be needed on the day of maturity, on the face-to-face -face day. We won't need the ministry of knowledge because everyone will know fully, even as we're fully known. As the prophet Jeremiah says, talking about this future day of the Lord when the new covenant reaches its final fulfillment. Jeremiah says no longer will they need to teach their neighbor. No longer will anyone need to teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord. Because Jeremiah 31, 34, I think, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So knowledge will be final. And full in the new creation. And we won't need prophetic declarations of truth and falsehood. People to stand up and lead us saying, this is right and this is wrong. God's calling his church to do this. God's calling his church to do that. This is a dangerous thing for the church. We won't need prophets proclaiming those things. As one commentator writes, how can preachers and prophets have anything to say when the last judgment not only reveals, but evaluates and pronounces judgment upon all things. On that last day, all will be revealed when Christ returns. We won't need exhortations or encouragements or challenges to follow Jesus or run from sin anymore when the new creation comes. Prophets, preachers, teachers, the knowledge professing will be out of a job. Right? healing professions, <laughs> ministries of healing, 
finally, tongues and interpretation of tongues will not be needed in the new creation. Now, Paul, interestingly, doesn't give a reason why, but it seems that they fall under the category of words from God about God that we won't need anymore because we're face to face. That's why in your notes I put a question mark. Because Paul doesn't really give it. He says, prophecies will pass away, knowledge will pass away because we know in part, but tongues will pass away. They'll be still. All right. So all the gifts of the Spirit that the Corinthians are making the biggest deal out of. The ones who say, if you really want to succeed in the church, if you want to really be something in God's kingdom, you need to be prophesying up there with the best of them. And what that was starting to produce, we'll talk about this, but there were some rivalries going on. Who could prophesy the loudest? You know, they're prophesying at the same time. Or they were speaking in tongues all at the same time without any interpretations. And lost people were walking in and being like, these people are crazy. Bunch of babblers. It was not loving. It was not good. They were misusing them, these gifts. Paul is saying, guess what? All these gifts that you're so excited about, they're not going to be there in the new creation. So prioritize what really matters, guys. What's going to last forever. And that is faith, hope, and love. See that in verse 13? That's the third point today. Faith, hope, and love remain forever. <clears throat> now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. These three virtues has often been called the Pauline triad. It's a fancy way of saying three things Paul likes to talk about a lot. Faith, hope, and love. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read that for you because that's another place in Paul's letters where these three virtues come up. And they're all interwoven together in a beautiful way. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore says Paul, since we've been justified through faith, through trust. Hear that? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by trust, by faith, into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. We're not going to be embarrassed because God let us down. We hope for the new creation, and this is it. No, we're not going to be ashamed of our hope. Why? Well, God's given us confidence of that even now, of our hope, that we're not going to be embarrassed about it because God has poured out his love into our hearts. There's love through the Holy Spirit. Who he has given to us, sealing us, guaranteeing us that our inheritance is coming. Our hope is sure. Is sure. So, our faith is trust in God. And while it is true that our trust in God is going to undergo a transformation when we finally see him face to face, our faith, tur our faith turned to sight, right? we will still trust him and believe in him through the ages. Faith will go on. Trust will go on. We will trust him because we love him. 
Love is the foundation on which trust and the Lord is built. When our affections for the Lord are stirred and we cherish him and treasure him for who he really is, then we will trust him. Our trust in him when we finally see him will be next level trust, right? Trust we've never even experienced yet in this world. And our hope in God will also be transformed in the new creation. No longer are we going to be trusting God and waiting, hopefully, for the fulfillment of God's promises. Instead, we'll be enjoying all that we had hoped for. We'll be living the hope for all eternity. We'll be enjoying God, who is our hope, into the ages. But Paul doesn't just highlight faith or hope. He ends with love. This is the final point. Love, he says, is the greatest. Love is the greatest because love, not faith and not hope, but love is at the very heart of who God himself is. God doesn't have faith. Who would he trust in? He is the eternal, totally self-sufficient one. He himself gives all men life and breath. He doesn't need anything. And God doesn't have hope in someone. He is the hope of all the earth. Paul's benedictions say things like, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing and trusting, so that by the power of his Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He is the God of hope. He doesn't hope in anything. He is hope. So faith and hope are not central to who God's character is, but as the Apostle John famously said in his letter to the church in 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love. And in his saving us and rescuing us, as we read earlier from Romans 5, God puts his own love in our hearts by his Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And so love for God, love is the greatest. And love towards God and God's love towards us and our godlike love towards him and towards others will be what fills heaven and the new creation for all eternity. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards spent his entire writing career writing primarily about the love of God, the Trinitarian love of God between the Father and the Son. I've read a lot of what he writes. It infuses all his thinking. He thought about the love of God perhaps more than anyone alive today or then. Augustine probably came close back in the 400s. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon, and I've referenced this before for you. It's called Heaven is a World of Love. Heaven is a World of Love. I really encourage you. I read it again this week. Most of it. I got about three quarters through it. It'll take you about an hour or two to read it carefully. But I, I really encourage you. Google it. It's free online. And just read it. Some of it has some old language that might go over your head. But it is worth reading. Heaven is a World of Love. Edwards unpacks all the hope of heaven for us. I just, it, it stirs my heart every time. And I just want to read a little snippet from the beginning. Edwards says this. He says, 
God is the fountain of love, as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills the heaven with love, as the sun, placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day, fills the world with light. The apostle tells us, here he references John, that God is love. God is love. That's who he is. Therefore, seeing that God is an infinite being, limitless, it follows that he is an infinite, limitless fountain of love. Seeing he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is a full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. Like, his love isn't going to run dry like our love does. And because he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. And what Edwards goes on to spend his entire sermon doing is just unpacking how this eternal, unchangeable, limitless, sufficient, all-satisfying love is the love that will thrill us and fill us for all eternity as we live face-to-face -face with our Creator. Love is the greatest because love is at the heart of who God is. He has been loving His Son, the reflection of His beauty, the perfect reflection of His worth, His own Son. He's been loving His Son, and His Son has been loving Him with the power of the Holy Spirit between them for all eternity. And it is that spirit that he puts in his people to love him and love others with his own love. Our faith is faith in the God of love. Our hope is hope in the God of love. And all three remain, but the greatest is love. So now as we move towards some direct application for our lives, I want you to think about church ministry for a minute. Kind of how we started. We humans sometimes fall into patterns of thinking that um, when we see someone gifted or talented or making waves in the world, we should put them up front immediately. So you're an amazing musician? You should lead the Christian worship movement. You should start a band. If a sports player gets saved, professes faith in Christ, do everything you can to give him the mic. Platform him. Send him the book deals because he's going to change lives. Why? Because he's cool and talented and popular. He kind of keep his faults on the DL, right? Until they hit the fan and there's all kinds of trouble. We tend to want to platform talent. And abilities. We are easily wowed by spirituality or what looks like spirituality. Amazing prayers that go on and on. I could never pray like that. I was at a, I was at a meal. Somebody invited me over and um, there was a guy that said, would you play, pray for the food? Let's hear how a seminary trained person prays. 
we've got a chip on our shoulder. But anyway, I, I said, Lord, thank you for the food. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> or it's like, I, I don't know, maybe I was an overcorrection. But the point is, we tend to like view, like, whoa, spiritual prayers. No, they must be so spiritual. Think about preaching and teaching, for example. Somebody shares a profound word, wise, knowledgeable, and we think, oh, man, they're, they're so godly. Something like that, right? They preach a dynamic sermon, and they, they say, oh, they're on fire. Oh, man, they, they belong in a big church with big book deals and big conference invitations and big speaking engagements because bigger is better because more people will hear about Jesus through their awesomeness. We need to platform their gifts. And this is how the celebrity preacher was created. The church in Corinth struggled with the same things. We talked about that back in chapters 1 to 4. Remember how they were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or somebody really got spiritual and said, well, I follow Jesus. They all had their favorite teachers who were talented and gifted. But what Paul is saying is really simple. Do these mightily gifted individuals have love? Are they patient when people don't listen to them? Are they kind? Do they love their enemies? Or do they blast them online? Are they humble and meek? Are they genuinely thrilled when others experience more fruit in their ministries than they do? People are getting saved every time this other guy preaches, and I am pumped, right? <laughs> Are they celebrating the success or are they envious of the success of others? One, one analogy that I love, you know, celebrating the success of others. Think of a soccer game, right? You've got uh, four guys on the front line and they're all working together as hard as they can to get the ball into the goal. And one guy gets it in and everyone else is going wild. Why? Because our team scored. Like, wow, that would be a beautiful thing, right? If the people of God were like that about church size and church growth and conversions. That person came to faith in Christ through that person's ministry. Praise God. I preached to them for 20 years and they never did anything or thought anything. And then they went to his church one time and Jesus wins. All right? Not for me. Must be, you know, something, you know, thinking poorly of him or something. We can find all sorts of ways to discredit someone else's success. But ultimately, it's the Lord's success. We need to have eyes to see success, ministry, the way God does. Does this person love little children like Jesus does? Or do they court other powerful people seeking to build into relationships that are going to help leverage their position and their influence in the Christian world? I'm not saying this is totally wrong, but 
You ever looked at a book and said, I wonder if this is a good book? And then you look at the back and say, who, who recommends it? Who blurred it? Right? That's kind of a way of platform building. Um, and publishers make you do this. So it doesn't have you. Because they want to sell books. Because if they don't sell books, they go out of business. So if you're going to write a book with a publisher, then you've got to get names on the back of your book. And guess what? They're not going to allow you to have no-name pastors on there. Because no-name pastors don't sell books. Okay? And the same with the sports world. If you're going to write a book in any sphere, if you want sales, you've got to have big names. Alright? And, and so, better court some big names. Make some friends in high places if you want to sell books or be successful. This is the way that the world thinks. But it's the opposite of the way that God thinks. I'm not saying it's wrong to have somebody blurb your book or recommend it. You want to say, hey, this is a good book, read it. Okay, sure. But we have to guard ourselves in our motives for things. May God give us eyes to see what love, true love, looks like. And may it take deeper root in our hearts, in our lives. Preaching, teaching, knowledge, prophetic words, vast knowledge of theology, speaking in tongues, God-given languages. These things will pass away when Jesus returns. They will all seem so childlike when we're face-to-face -face with Jesus. Wonder, wonder about, like, Will I read my old sermons in the new creation and be like, I was like a kid, like a little <laughs> kid. Like, like, I used to like to write stories as a kid, okay? I go back and read those stories now, I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, like, the, 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 the worlds that I created with my mind were just pretty bizarre. They had a lot of hunting and a lot of things dying in them. And, um, you know, I just look back at it. It just seems so childish, and you just wonder, <laughs> will we, will we want to, you know, in the new creation, those who have written books would be like, man, now that I see face to face, it's so much more. Heaven is a world of love, and one day this world of love will be fused with ours, and heaven and an earth will be one. And so from the passage today and all of chapter 13, God is calling us as his people to recalibrate to tune our minds and hearts to what we value most in the Christian community. Sure, we value right teaching and right preaching of God's word. And we value knowledge of the Bible and of God's will in the world. And sure, we can be greatly helped by dynamic speakers and teachers and challenged by those who speak boldly and prophetically with great knowledge of God and his word. But these gifts are all temporary signs. They're pointing our hearts towards God's forever love towards us in Christ. And they're summoning us. All the gifts of God are meant to summon us, call us into an eternity of loving him and loving others. An eternity that starts even now. Love is the goal of all the gifts that the Spirit gives in 1 Corinthians 12 and all the lists. Love is the goal. Love is the one thing that should fuel them all. And the world that we are headed for in Christ is a world of love. A world where we will all be fully complete and mature in love. We'll never drop the ball again. 
will never be hurt by the selfishness of others or ourselves again. Perfect love remains into the ages. A love that is always patient and always kind. A love that is never manipulative. No ulterior motives in the new creation ever. Never twisted to its own ends. Never selfish. Love will never envy. The joy in heaven, when one person is rejoicing, is going to fuel the overall joy in heaven. He's happy, we're all happy. And I use the word heaven and new creation interchangeably because heaven and earth will be one one day. The realms will overlap. There will be no boasting in ourselves in heaven will boast in Christ and in his love. We'll be able to love and seek the good of others always without having to worry. If I love, will my own needs get met? Because everybody in the future world will be loving us as well. We'll be outdoing one another and showing honor. The love that remains into the ages will never dishonor others, nor will we ever be tempted to, because nothing dishonorable will ever enter that world. Face to face for eternity with our Creator, we will love and love into the ages. Love remains forever. Friends, as I mentioned earlier, I encourage you, maybe an application this week if you can, as we read this passage, Google, heaven is a world of love. Read, read a few paragraphs from it. It's long. When Edward preached it, it probably took him two hours. They were used to that back in those days. Maybe take it in bite size. Maybe you can find an audio version of it. But I encourage you to do that. And I'm going to close by praying this, but may our hearts, all our hearts, be tuned to what God views as most significant in his church and in the world, which is love. Love that remains through the ages. Lord, I pray that you would tune our hearts to where others need love where we are being called and summoned to pour out our lives to others and trust on you that you will love us enough to satisfy and fill our needs while we meet needs of others. I pray that you would show us those areas. Show us who to love and how. Father, when we're tempted to doubt your love because of our failures and our sins and our imperfections, help us to believe that you love sinners. And you love to fill them with love for others and for you. Help us to run into your arms as a church and as a people. May we run towards you and not away from you and learn from you how to love as we have been loved. Lord, please forgive me and all of us for all the ways that we have failed to love others and failed to love you. 
even this week. We are not yet perfect in love, but one day, completeness will come when we see you face to face. Help us to long for that day and to live in light of it now. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What I'd like to do, um, I'm going to ask if uh, Richard and if Jacob, if you guys would come up and pass out the Lord's Supper. And I, I want to play for you a song while we take the Lord's Supper that uh, is about this world of love. Um, it's written by Andrew Peterson. It's called After the Last Tear Falls. Some of you may have heard this song before, but I'd like to play it for you now. Close your eyes if you would and let the message soak over.
don't know how well the words are coming through, but after the last tear falls, after the last groan from this broken world is over, there will be love. Eternal, unending love in the presence of our Creator and King. And that's what we're celebrating right now as a symbol of His love for us, that He was broken that we would know love. Love is the giving of your life for another's good at its basic form. God is the giver of all life, and therefore God is the most loving being that you could ever imagine. And that is what this is about. These symbols represent how he gave his life for those who rebelled against him and refused to give their lives to others. And yet there's forgiveness through the blood of Christ. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, my, my life, <laughs> broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the bread, he took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the gift of your life. I pray that with your help and your strength, we would give our lives that others may know and live as we do. Father, I thank you so much for this time that we've had together. And I pray that you would stir our hearts for the hope of heaven, for a hope, the hope of a a world and a life together with the Lord. We just pray this in Jesus' name.